Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast today. We're entering into the Advent season through the book of Luke as we see the birth of Jesus and his childhood years. We're really excited to share that with you and hope that this season will be enveloped by remembering Jesus coming to be with us. We'd also want to invite you to partner with us financially. We have a few missionaries that you can find on our website that have really blessed our church by doing college ministry. And also we have seminarians that we want to invite our listeners to support as well. We're starting a church residency program, praying to uh, see God raise up the next generation of pastors at Renew Church. You can find all that information at the description section. Enjoy the podcast. I'm so glad that we're here, that we're able to worship together. Uh, Renew tradition, we actually uh, break up into little groups around us, and we have a question that we want to ask. And so if you would look up uh, here, do we have the question? Okay. Uh, Please share what you've learned in the past about the 12 disciples, whether in Sunday school or in popular culture, whatever you've learned about the 12 disciples, please share what you've learned about them and what practical lessons uh, have the 12 disciples taught you about life? Can we do that? So let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's break up into our little groups and let's talk about the 12 disciples. All right, if I could have your attention, please. If we could come back to um, up here to me. I always feel weird about saying that, but um, we're really, really excited that you guys are here. Welcome to Renew Church, those that are visiting for the first time. And those of you that have only come a couple times, Uh, We want to welcome you. We're so happy that you guys are here. Um, We're going to be talking about the 12 disciples this morning. And so what we want to do is, uh, if you have your devices, uh, turn to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have, you know, a Bible or anything like that, don't worry about it. We can put it up uh, here on screen. Um, But Luke chapter 6, we're going to be looking at four verses, verses 12 through 16. Luke chapter 6. Uh, Let me read it for us. And Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, or Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, this morning, all we're going to do is we're going to look at the 12 disciples themselves and glean some very important truths about who we are as Jesus' disciples. And so let's talk about the disciples that Jesus chooses. If you're taking notes, my first point is that Jesus chooses ordinary people. Jesus chooses ordinary people. Verse 13, Jesus called his disciples to him. The word called literally means summoned. That Jesus personally summoned these men for discipleship. He identified them, he selected them, and he empowered them. And the Bible also says that he called them and he chose them. You know, John 15, 16 said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you. They didn't volunteer for this. They were chosen. Now, that begs the question, right? Why were they chosen? Why choose them? 
Were they special? Were they X-Men with uh, mutant metahuman powers that nobody else had? Were they the Avengers, a collection of Earth's mightiest heroes with all of the, the different outstanding things that they could do? You know, religious artwork around the world almost sees or portrays the disciples as special. Whether you look at Orthodox icons or Roman Catholic statues or even Protestant stained glass windows, you see that the disciples are portrayed with these halos. These disciples are portrayed almost in comic book fashion as if they were special superhuman superheroes. But the fact is that these were ordinary men. Not one of them was known for their intellectual talents. None of them had exceptional abilities or outstanding qualities. They were complete outsiders from the establishment of their day. Now, how do I know this? Well, we've got to go back to the first century, and we've got to study the educational system of Jesus' day. But I need you to do something. If you've been here at Renew a long time, you've done this practice before. If not, uh, humor me, right, if this is your first time. Put your hand on your head. Would you do that right now? Your hand on your head. So what you have on your head is a 21st century baseball cap, okay? You have a Dodgers baseball cap on, all right? Some of you are like, no, I have a Padres baseball cap on. I, I understand, Jerome, that you have to wear that. So what you're going to do is you're going to take off your baseball cap, okay? Take it off, okay? If it's a Dodgers cap, put it aside, revere it. If it's a Padres cap, throw it away in the trash, right? Okay, I'm just joking. But you take off that, and now I want you to put back on your head, would you do that right now? A first century sudra, a Hebrew sudra, okay? So what you've just done, and, you, and that's done with the illustration, you've taken off your 21st uh, century understanding of uh, this passage, what you come into with your culture and with your you know, uh, ideas and you know, with what we know about the 21st century, you're not allowing the scripture to kind of, uh, your 21st century understanding to influence the scripture. What you're doing is you're seeing it in the light of a first century person, okay? And we've got to do that in order to understand, uh, especially the educational system of Jesus' day in Israel. So back then, it was every Jewish boy's dream, those who lived in the towns and villages, it was their dream of, beco their dream of becoming a rabbi or a spiritual uh, teacher or leader. That was what every Jewish boy fantasized about, again, living in the towns and villages of Israel. That was what they wanted to be. It's like an Asian boy fantasizing about playing in the NBA, right? When I was a kid, I wanted to play for the Lakers, right? I wanted so badly in my dreams to play with uh, Magic Johnson, right? That would have been the, the highlight of my life. And that wasn't what Jewish boys back then uh, dreamed of, they dreamed of becoming rabbis because the education of God's word was central to Jewish life in the first century. And because of this, all Jewish children went to synagogue to be educated in God's word. And so the first stage of their education was to go to the house of the book. Say that with me, house of the book. Okay, say it louder, house of the book. Okay, that's what they went to. That was the first stage. So from ages uh, six, uh, six years of age, uh, they were taught the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so from ages 6 to 11, they would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
And if you showed exceptional ability, if you were able to memorize, maybe if you had a photographic memory, maybe if you could recall things, then and only then were you invited to the next stage. So most everyone stopped at the first stage, the house of the book. But if you were exceptional, you would go on to the second stage, which would be the house of learning. Say that with me. One more time. Okay, you're learning, right? House of learning, okay? So from ages 11 to 17 years of age, you would memorize all of the Hebrew scriptures. What we would know as the 39 books of the Old Testament, you would memorize all of it. And they would begin training you in the art of pill pull. Now, what's pill pull? That is the Jewish method of answering questions with questions, right? It was kind of a Socratic method to master your reasoning capabilities. Now, I have a little clip that I want to show you. This isn't gospel, okay? This is kind of an imagining of maybe what Jesus had to go through. And the Bible tells us little about his childhood, only that because he had the Spirit of God and because he was God the Son, he was very precocious, right? And so we can imagine, and this clip imagines maybe what Jesus had to go through in the art of pill pull. Can we show that right now? I think it's a very fascinating thing. This is Bar Joseph. He's my son. Look at me, Jesus Bar Joseph. Why did the Phoenicians cut the hair of Samson? Forgive me, Rabbi, but it was not the Phoenicians. It was the Philistines, and they cut his hair to make him weak. Where is Elisha? who was taken up in the chariot. It was Elisha who was taken up. Elisha is with the Lord. Who resides in the Garden of Eden? No one. There's no one in Eden. There is no one in Eden writing this and all the deeds of the world down? Men say it is Enoch, but Eden is empty until the Lord says all the world will be Eden again. Why did the Lord break his covenant with King David? The Lord does not break his covenant. The throne is there. Where is the king? He will come, and his house will last forever. <laughs> will, will a carpenter build it? <laughs> yes. There's always a carpenter. Even the Lord himself is a carpenter sometimes. How is the Lord a carpenter? Tell me. Didn't the Lord himself Tell Noah how to build the ark, what kind of wood to use, and how it should be pitched. And wasn't it the Lord who granted the vision of the new temple to prophet Ezekiel with the dimensions of the galleries, the gates, the altar? Yes, it was. And when the Lord made the world, wasn't wisdom there like a master craftsman? If wisdom is not the Lord, what is wisdom? And when Cyrus the Persian decreed that we could return to our holy land, the carpenters came home to build the temple, as the Lord said it should be built. And <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It gives me chills when I watch it. Now, it's an imagining. It didn't happen probably that way, but isn't that amazing? That was the art of pill pull, okay? By the way, I don't ever want you to watch this movie. Uh, I, I do not recommend it, okay? <laughs> this actually, uh, this, past, uh, this clip is from uh, a movie called Jesus the Messiah that, that actually is taken from the Gospel of Thomas, which is a, a very heretical book. It's not from the Bible, okay? So why did I show you this? 
I'm not heretical. I just wanted to show you the art of pill pull and what's that. What the, so don't watch the movie. I do not recommend that movie, okay? It's very cultish. Anyway, if you were the best of the best student, then you could move on to, this, uh, to the third stage. And the third stage now is the house of answers. Say that with me. One more time. The House of Answers. Now you have officially entered the major leagues. You have now entered the NFL draft. NFL stands for National Future Leaders Draft. You are now eligible for the NBA draft. The NBA stands for National Big Boys Association Draft. Okay? You are in the major leagues because you've proven your talent and your ability and your skill as a future rabbi. In this elite stage, then, you would be allowed to choose a rabbi that you admired, and you would ask him to be his disciple. Now, that rabbi would test you to see if you were good enough to be his disciple. He would test you in the Torah. He would test you in the Tanakh. He would test you in the commentaries. He would go and he would uh, skillfully uh, do the art of pill pull with you to see if you were that greatest of and pr most promising of student, if you had the greatest potential, if you were the wisest, most talented, most gifted person, then and only then would he say to you, come follow me. And you would leave your parents and your family and your community, and you would follow the rabbi wherever he would go. You would become his disciple so that you could learn as much from uh, him as possible because you would be a rabbi someday. It is what we call the rabbinic residency, right? But if that rabbi thought you were not good enough, he would not say to you, come follow me. He would, at least, he would say to you instead, go into the world. Go from me. You know, uh, work a trade. Become a fisherman or a farmer or a craftsman or a laborer. There's no shame in hard work, he would say. But for you, you are not good enough to be my, my disciple. Now, it's in this context, let me ask you, who was Jesus choosing? He was choosing the fisherman and the farmer and the craftsman and the laborer. These men who had given up on that dream of becoming a rabbi many, many years ago. And it's amazing that Jesus wasn't following the protocol of a rabbi. He didn't wait for the usual suspects, the best and brightest to come follow him. As a matter of fact, he was doing the opposite. He went out to find ordinary people who were cut by the religious system because they were not good enough, not discipleship material. And here the Bible says that Jesus summoned them with those three words, come follow me, at the fishing boat, in the farmer's field, around the crafts table, passing by a tax booth. He chose ordinary, average, regular nobodies. And by the way, that's why when we read in scripture that Jesus calls out to the sons of Zebedee, they're on their boat, right, James and John with Zebedee, and he says, come follow me. They drop everything to follow him. Now, you might say, well, why did they do that? Because their dreams of becoming a rabbi were fulfilled. Jesus, this famous popular rabbi, was saying, hey, listen, you're good enough. I want you to come. I want you, that's who I'm looking for. And they drop everything. It was built into the culture. If Magic Johnson came to my dorm room in college and he said, hey, come follow me, play with the Lakers. I would have left my books, my dorm room, my girlfriend. I would have left everything to go and follow Magic Johnson because he thinks I'm good enough, right? Now, why did Jesus choose them? And here's my point. 
God has always been in the habit of choosing the ordinary. All throughout scripture, we see it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, it says this. And here, uh, Paul, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to Christians. He says this. For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of the Lord. And in verse 31, I love it. It says this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God delights in using ordinary people because they know that it's not about them. They have nothing in and of themselves that they bring to the table. So there's no pride or haughtiness, no conceit or arrogance. They know that the only thing they can boast about is the Lord. So that when God takes the ordinary person and does the extraordinary through him or her, all glory is rightly given to God. Amen? So let me ask you this question. Are you ordinary this morning? Do you feel average or obscure or even weak? Can I share with you, that is exactly the kind of person the Lord delights to choose and to use. You see, Jesus chooses ordinary people. My second point is, Jesus chooses imperfect people. The misconception that we might have is that these 12 disciples were morally superior people. I remember discipling a guy who had just come out of Roman Catholicism, and I remember talking about how we are saints and he looked at me, and he gave me a very visceral response. He said, no, hold on now. I'm not a saint. And I remember talking to him and saying, Dan, of course you're a saint. The Bible says that you're a saint. I'm a saint. He said, no, 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 no. I am not a saint. Someday I might make it to become a saint, but I, I doubt I will, right? But I will ne uh, it's going to be very hard for me to be a saint. And I said, well, why is that? And he said this, because Peter is a saint, because John is a saint, because James is a saint. And I had to talk to him about what it means and what the Bible says because his idea was that Peter, James, and John were these morally superior, greatly, you know, a holy people. But the truth is, when we look at Scripture, these were flawed men. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat or airbrush the men and women uh, in Scripture. They're presented warts and all. And here we see in the passage and it gives us a list. And we don't have time to look at every single one, but I'm going to highlight a few to make my point because I want you to see a snapshot of who these disciples really were. Let's look at the first one, Peter the denier. Peter the denier. Uh, you don't have to turn there. Just listen to what uh, passages I'm going to use. In Mark chapter 14 at the upper room, before the events leading up to the crucifixion, uh, Jesus had just had you know, this amazing uh, last supper with them that they don't know that it's the Last Supper. And here's what he tells them in verse 27. And Jesus told them, you will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Imagine hearing that as a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus states that it will absolutely happen. That the disciples will desert him and scatter and run away, leaving him to face the cross alone. And how does Jesus know this? Because uh, the prophet Zechariah prophesying hundreds of years before this event in Zechariah 13, 7, prophesied that this would happen. I want you to notice what Peter says, though. Peter says in verse 29, even if all of these dudes, okay, 
fall away, I will not. Verse 31, Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I want you to notice Peter's response is arrogant. He becomes so overconfident that he denies the biblical truth that Jesus is giving, the prophecy that Jesus is sharing in Zechariah. He overestimates uh, his own spiritual, spirituality excuse me, over the other disciples. He said, well, these guys might. I can see them doing it, but I'm the rock. You called me the rock, right? I'm not going to do that to you. And then we know the story. Uh, later that night when Jesus was in tr on trial, verse 70, after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. And in uh, verse 71, Peter began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, invoking curses doesn't mean he cussed them out. Okay? In the Bible, invoking curses on oneself was a kind of witness. So it was an invitation for God to witness what is being said, that it was actually true, and to punish the person if he's lying. Can you imagine that? That's what Peter's doing. What does Peter come to? One moment he says, I will die with you. The next moment he says, curse me, God, if I even know you, if I even know who you are. Peter, the denier. Let me give you another one. James and John, the supplant. These are not what they really look like, okay? We don't know what they really look like. These are artist renderings, which is pretty, pretty crazy. But anyway, all right, James and John, the, I look at this, I have to laugh. All right, James and John, the supplanters, okay? In Mark chapter 10, uh, in verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of you sit at your right and the other at your left. And I'm sorry, they look so funny. <laughs> one at your right, the other at your left in your glory. So the right and left seats beside any monarch was the privileged power positions in any kingdom. So think about what they're requesting. James and John selfishly, ambitiously wanted to supplant all the other disciples by being the most important. I mean, think about that. If your friend ever did that to you, how messed up would that be? And in verse 41, when the other 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, as, as right they should, right? Because of what they did. Let me show you another one. This is another TMZ kind of shocking one that I want to share with you, okay? Luke chapter 9. And Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people did not welcome Jesus because he was heading to Jerusalem. So in this passage, Jesus is going to Jerusalem he has to go through Samaria, and so he's trying to set up accommodations, right? But the Samaritans, they don't like the Jews, and so they're very rude to Jesus. I want you to notice the response. Here's a TMZ response in verse 54. When James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? What? Did they just ask for supernatural power to burn down a whole village? Right? For what? Because the people were rude? and inhospitable, and look at the excuse, hey, this is for Jesus, let's burn him down for Jesus, but when did Jesus ever ask for that, when was that ever Jesus' mission, these guys are cold-blooded, James and John were a bunch of jerks, <laughs> think about this, these three were the Lord's inner circle, Peter, James, and John, have the halos fallen off of these guys in your eyes yet, they had serious flaws, impetuous, proud, selfish, malicious, vindictive. Let me give you another one. This is interesting. Thomas the doubter. In John chapter 20, 
Verse 24, it says, now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he had risen again. Thomas didn't see it. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas challenges what Jesus promised he would do over and over and over again to rise from the dead. And here he stubbornly refuses to believe that Jesus had risen and remains entrenched in that mindset, even when the other disciples testify to it. He absolutely, emphatically believes Jesus could not have risen by saying that the only way he would trust that reality would be to physically, tangibly touch him. So in verse 26, a week after his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Why did he have to say this? Because Thomas was a doubter. Let me give you another one. Matthew the sinner. Can we put that up? Matthew the sinner. So in the book of Matthew, we see that Matthew gives us a list of the 12 disciples just like Luke does. But in the book of Matthew in verse 3, he refers to himself as a tax collector. Remember, Matthew is the writer of the gospel. So he could put in what he wants. And he chose to put in tax collectors. Was he proud of being an IRS agent? Is that why? Right? <laughs> now listen to, me, listen to me. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were the worst of the worst. They were referred to as scumbags. They were the scum. They were the epitome of the word sinner. The Talmud actually taught that it was good and even righteous to lie and deceive a, a tax collector because that's what they really deserved. Now, do we have those feelings about the IRS today? I hope not, but I'm sure we don't, right? We may find it uncomfortable to pay our taxes, but we don't feel this way. Why did they feel this way? Well, when Rome conquered an area, their main concern was to take a large percentage of wealth and resources from that area. And so Rome would franchise tax collectors from among the people they had conquered to make sure that they received their taxes and their tribute. So these native tax collectors would make sure that they got the right percentage to Rome because if they didn't, man, you know, it would be very scary. And so they made sure that things went to Rome. But in order to profit, they would increase taxes. They would pad the numbers to exhort a huge profit. So the, the tax collectors were much like the mafia of our day. They got their money by whatever means necessary, threats, violence, intimidation was their calling card to make a profit. And the reason why they were so hated was because they preyed upon their own people for the oppressor in order to become rich. And that's why they were called sinners. They were greedy, and they were dishonest, and they were uh, uh, oppressive, and they flat out betrayed their people. And this is what Matthew said he was before Jesus called him. The reason why the writer of uh, Matthew's gospel refers to himself as a tax collector was to remind himself and all of us of what Jesus had called him out of, a sinful past. By now, you're probably feeling uncomfortable. You might be saying, well, Dave, you are so negative. You know, Why do you have to put shade on the disciples like that? Why do you have to throw shade on the disciples, right? And my goal is not to diss the disciples. I'm not trying to troll the 12, okay? That's not my purpose. You see, God chooses 
people like this. And my purpose is not to disparage the disciples. My purpose is to demystify them. God chooses imperfect people. Maybe today you're saying, God could never use me. I have anger issues. I get bitter and resentful in my relationships. Do you know what? So did the Apostle James. You say, God can never use me. I struggle with selfishness. I'm tempted to be petty and manipulative. Guess what? The Apostle John had that problem too. You don't understand. I battle doubts and depression. I'm too pessimistic to be considered a disciple. Well, that's probably how the Apostle Thomas felt. What kind of disciple could I be? I'm flaky. I'm inconsistent. I have a bad track record of being unreliable. Oh, yeah? The Apostle Peter could speak to you on that very subject. If you saw my past, all the things I've done, all the mistakes I've made, you wouldn't say that I'd be a, a good disciple. Well, let me introduce you to Matthew, the ex-tax collector turned apostle. He would definitely disagree with you. Amen? You see, the reason why God chooses imperfect people is actually my third point, that God chooses to transform people. I'm, I'm pointing to you. Okay, anyway. God chooses to transform people. You see, I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but our God is a recycling God. Did you know that? Our God practices green methods. His MO is to reduce, reuse, and renew, right? To reduce us to a point where we see our flaws and we see our need of him. To reuse us, to, to refashion us, to transform us into his image, and then to renew us to make us into that new creation, to be, make us, to be made Christ-like in, in our actions and in our attitudes. You see, our God is into green technology. He loves to take broken, flawed, weak, sinful people and transform them through his power. And really, that is what discipleship is, for us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. The disciple, when he is fully uh, transformed, will look more like his rabbi. Did you know Peter the denier was transformed into Peter the leader? And in the book of Acts, he spearheads the gospel mission and boldly becomes his chief spokesperson. He becomes the rock that Jesus always said that he would be. James the supplanter, who selfishly manipulated his agenda, became James the pillar. And in the book of Acts, he gave his life selflessly in martyrdom to advance the gospel agenda, not his own. John, who could be malicious and revengeful, was transformed into John, the apostle of love. And his writings contain more about love than any other book in the New Testament. Thomas the doubter, after the resurrection, was so full of faith that history and tradition tells us that he boldly went to India with the gospel and started a movement there. And to this day, there are churches that trace their lineage back to not Thomas the doubter, but Thomas the faithful. And there are countless Indian Christians who claim their spiritual legacy to Thomas. These 12 flawed men turned the world upside down through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And you know Matthew the sinner, that outcast, that scum of the earth pariah, the one disqualified by all rabbinic authorities to become a disciple because of his evil, evil past? Guess what? He was transformed and he wrote the gospel of Matthew some scholars say as a discipleship manual for all of us as Jesus' disciples to learn and grow from. Amen? When the Lord called you to be his disciple, he knew that you were imperfect. He doesn't ask you to be perfect in your own strength. All the Lord asks you to do is three words. 
Come follow me. And he will transform you as you walk with him, as you follow him, as you surrender to him. And when Jesus transforms you, you will not be the same person that you are today. You know, John chapter 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You see, Jesus chooses ordinary, imperfect people and transforms them by using them in a powerful way. Let me close with this thought, that the only person Jesus cannot use is a person who refuses to follow him. There's one more person I want you to look at, and that is Judas Iscariot. And we all know the story of Judas. And we always think of him uh, in the worst possible terms of betraying Jesus. But there's something I want you to think about. We fail to remember that his betrayal was a symptom of a root cause. And what was that root cause? It was that Judas was an actor. Did you know that the word hypocrite that we use today was a Greek word that just meant actor? Today, it's pejorative. We say, oh, you hypocrite. And it's meant to be a, a, a powerful insult. But back then, it just meant putting on a mask and acting and playing a part, right? When we look at Tom Cruise, uh, based on you know, first century ideas, we could say, what an amazing hypocrite. I mean, Maverick, you know, Top Gun Maverick was the greatest hypocrisy we've ever seen, right? <laughs> or Kate Blanchett, wow, that woman is a hypocrite, right? It just means being an amazing actor at your craft. Judas went throughout his discipleship, and everyone thought he was a disciple, but the Bible says that he did not believe. Do you know what he was doing? He was acting. Judas was so good at acting that no one knew except for Jesus. And can I share with you, the person who refuses to be authentic with Jesus, the person who refuses to come just as they are, will never see the power of God on their life. That's something that Jesus cannot use, a person who is an actor. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the lessons from these 12 disciples. Lord, we ask as we ponder what it means to be your disciple, that we would be encouraged, that we would be motivated, but that we'd also be warned about what it means to truly follow after you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening. Since I have you here, I wanted to give you a few more resources and talk about how you can invest in our ministry. If you look at the description section of this podcast, we have a website for the church and would love to have you come visit us when you're in town. We're in Brea, California. We also have tax-deductible giving at Renew, and we would love for you to invest in our church and our seminarians as we have people coming in to become future missionaries and pastors at Renew. We want to train up the next generation of pastors to reach their generation for the Lord. There's also a few more resources. At the very bottom, I do a podcast with Roy Kim, who's an MFT. It's called The Same Boat, where we talk about issues from English ministries at immigrant Chinese churches to relationships and being single. 
I hope that you would enjoy this podcast with us as a way to talk off the pulpit and into our daily lives. And lastly, Nina and I wrote a children's book series called To Be, helping kids integrate their faith with their occupation. And on that website, there's also the adulting journal. If you're in your 20s or 30s and you're going through transition in career, relationship, or just rethinking your spirituality, this is a great space for you to examine inward and find what God has written on your hearts and in your values. I hope that those resources uh, would connect with your heart and that you would connect with us. God bless.